morning. Uh, it's my privilege to share God's word with you today. Um, and I had like a pretty good lengthy intro that Pastor Steve just jacked because I was going to talk about how, you know, Christ was walking with us through COVID, through the Gospel of Luke, and how we started in October 2020 and all that jazz, and he stole it. So um, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, but yeah, we're here, 24 chapters in. And so very natural for us, um, as we close our book together, here at the end, we start at the beginning of Luke, right? Uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, if I can ask you to open up your Bibles real quickly, to Luke 1, specifically Luke 1, verses 3 to 4. Luke 1, chap- chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 4, and let me read that for us. It's up there also behind me. It says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Right? So from the very first words of Luke's gospel, Luke is very clear with his intentions here. He's saying, look, Theophilus, you might have heard things about this guy named Jesus. You might have heard things about his life here about his miracles, his teaching. You might have heard things about how he died, the death of a criminal, crucifixion on the cross. And last but not least, you might have heard about his resurrection, that this man died and he rose from the dead. And Luke understands that there is a chance that some people might have heard these things. They might have heard bits and pieces of the story and are thinking to themselves, while they hear it, they're scratching their heads and they're thinking, Wait a minute. Is what you're saying really true? Did these things really happen? And what Luke says from the get-go in Luke chapter 1, he says, Look, if you find it here in my recording of Jesus' life, if you are reading about it here in my account of Jesus' life, then it is true. You can be certain of it. Take it to the bank, especially, is what Luke is saying. It's true. It happened. And you hear me say that, and you're kind of thinking, okay, but there's a little more certainty than that, John. I'm just not going to, like, listen to what Luke says. Of course, he has some kind of bias. All the things that he has gathered together, all the details that he has put together, how can I just take his word for it? And it's true, right? Because I think every one of us in this room understands that you can have all the facts that you want, all the details that you want, all the numbers that you want, but that's only going to get you so far. It would be nice if we can just have all of these things in front of us and accept it as truth, but as humans, I think you and I both understand that there's this element of our hearts. It just doesn't work that way. For us to be absolutely certain of something, especially when it comes to committing our entire lives, committing the purpose of our lives, our hopes, our dreams, When it comes to committing all of that to to something, to someone, there's only so far that facts and numbers can get us to. It's important. I think we can all agree it can only take us so far, that there's something beyond numbers. There's something beyond facts and an analysis for us to get to a place of absolute certainty. For example, I'm going to talk about dating. You're dating, or you're interested in dating. And so you say, I want to find 
the person for me. I want to find the right one. And so you do all your research, right, by dating, if you will, right? Number one, that person is attractive to you, right? Okay, good. Works, right? That person has a good job. Check. That person has a stable family. Check. That person's Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or whatever, right? It works. We're compatible. Yay, sweet. Check, right? She makes you laugh. He has similar values. You both love Christ. You have similar dreams. All these things are starting to add up. And you have gathered all the data, if you will, all the information that you need, if you will. And you wonder, at that point, at what point can you say, I know for absolute certain that without a doubt that this person is the right person for me? Can you say that? I don't know. It's kind of hard. Because intellect will only take you so far. They can take you to a place of probability, right? This person is probably the right person for me because these things check. But for certain, absolute certain, without a doubt, I don't know. But then there comes a day where you guys have to make a decision, and it's terrifying because that decision will leave you vulnerable. And you now have to decide whether or not you want to commit your entire life to that person and it is a scary thing to do but you commit to that person and maybe months later years later I don't know at that point you can look back and say yes that person was absolutely the right person for me your love at that point is bolstered by sacrifice or another your friendship is deeper and it's more full not just because you're happy, but because of joy through the years of your companionship. Steadfast in your walking together. You know the cadence of each other's breath. You know just by hearing the way they breathe, whether they are anxious or, or happy, you have jumped together with joy. You have held each other up through your years of suffering, seasons of suffering. And after that, you can look back and say, for sure, absolutely certain, this person was the one for me. I'm preparing for this this week, and I asked Tina, like, hey, when'd you know, huh? It's me. And she said, I knew when I had to say yes. That's when I knew. And it's true. There is something when it comes to certainty that there is always a combination of both, right? There's numbers, but there's also the emotions. There's the intellect, but then there's also the personal. There's the rational and there's the relational. You need both. They work together. They build off of one another. They support one another. And then they get you to a place of certainty. And I think that's what we find here in Luke chapter 24. How can we be certain that this actually happened? How can we be certain that after dying from crucifixion on the cross, Jesus Christ rose from, the third, rose from the dead on the third day? He showed up to two disciples walking on their walk, or walking to a small village outside of Jerusalem. And the answer that Luke gives us here in chapter 24, first the rational, if I can kind of divvy it up that way, it actually happened. It's history. And then the relational. What does that mean for you, though, personally? 
And Luke weaves these two things together in Luke 24 to get us to a point of absolute certainty. So first, the rational. This actually happened. That's why it's in here. You know, there's a famous quote from a skeptic, John Dominic Crossan, regarding this passage, right? And I took this from Tim Keller, so I just I was like, how do I, how do I quote? Um, oh, we'll, we'll get into that too. But how do I quote pastors who found awesome quotes? You know, and I was trying to tell Tina like, how do I give credit to him? She's like, just don't. But I am here. So, okay. There's a f- famous quote from a skeptic, John Dominic Crossan, regarding this passage, and he says this: Emmaus never happened. Emmaus always happens. You guys get that? Is Emmaus never happened? Emmaus always happens. What is this guy getting at? John Dominic Crossan's point is this, that Luke 24, the resurrection, the empty tomb, the appearance of Jesus to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it never actually happened. The disciples did probably experience something. That it was probably a powerful spiritual experience to them, so powerful that they felt like Jesus was actually with them somehow. But did he actually show up and walk walk alongside of them on the road to Emmaus? No. It didn't actually happen. They experienced it. And as time went on, the disciples, they crafted these beautiful stories to express their spiritual experience, to convey messages of a higher truth, of forgiveness, of hope, of love, goodness over darkness, power of life over death, You see, Emmaus never happened, actually. It's not a historical event, and yet it always happens because these stories that we read about here, it teaches us something all the time. These stories serve as moments of higher truths that you and I can hold on to about the power of goodness over darkness. Emmaus never happened, and yet it always happens. And here we have Luke, though, who says in chapter 1 that I have followed closely all these things for some time. I have organized all these stories and teachings and accounts so that you may be sure that this has actually happened. And Luke says, this is not just a story. This is not just a legend. This actually happened. And how does Luke get that point across for us? While we read, how can we believe that this is what Luke is actually trying to convey to us? There's many different things that we can point to. There's a lot. But for the sake of time, I'm only going to point out two. And one of the things that we can point out is this subtle detail here in verse 18. If you can look at verse 18 with me, it reads this. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So if I can kind of wrap this story up for you real briefly, it says, two main disciples, they're on their road. They're on the road outside of Jerusalem. They're walking to the mountain, seven miles it says, and their faces are dejected. Why? Just put put yourself in their shoes. For three years, they have followed this man. For three years, they have heard him speak with authority. They saw him do miracle after miracle. They saw him cast out demons. They gave up their lives to follow Jesus. They left their jobs. They left their families, their reputations. They follow him to Jerusalem, and they can feel some excitement building up. They're like, this is the city. 
This is the place where Jesus is finally going to do it. He's the king. He's going to redeem Israel. He's going to bring us back. He'll replace the Roman government. And they're sitting there watching Jesus put on trial. They're watching him carry up the cross. And his followers, they are waiting until the very last moment. They're like, just wait. He's going to do it. He's going to bust the crazy. He's going to do the impossible. He's going to jump off that cross. Just watch. And they're waiting for that moment. And something miraculous, it doesn't happen. In fact, the thing that they least expect happens, Jesus actually dies. They're thinking, what? He was supposed to be the one. This guy. Wasn't he supposed to be our savior? And I love the description of the disciples in the NIV. It says, they walk away from Jerusalem. Their faces are downcast. They're utterly devastated. Two disciples. And in verse 18, it shows us that only one of them gets a name. His name is Cleopas. Why? Why does he get a name? It's interesting. But it's there for a reason. There's a professor. His name is Richard Bauckham, biblical scholar. He has this book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he writes that what you and I, as modern readers of the scriptures, what we don't see as we are reading through these gospels is the significance of a proper name in the scriptures. Because when names were used and listed in that tradition, what those names were, what they served as, were footnotes. Work cited, if you will. You see, when you and I, you can go back to high school or college, you think of just like the pain of formatting work cited, just annoying how many spaces you need exactly, all that jazz. When you and I use footnotes, what we're doing is we're giving credit to the original sources, right? If we don't, the person reading our paper can't go back to check and see if what we're writing about is actually true. Right? With our footnotes, what we're doing is, don't believe me? Then go to the sources. Check them out directly for yourself. See that what I am writing about is true. But back then, they didn't have footnotes. Instead, what these writers would do is they would put in the names of living eyewitnesses of those whose testimony was the basis for their account. Whereas Bachman writes, if the names are of persons well-known in the Christian communities, then it also becomes likely that many of these persons were themselves the eyewitnesses who first told and doubtless continued to tell the stories in which they appear and to which their names are attached. All that to say, what Luke is doing here is, you want to fact check me? Go ahead. Talk to Cleopas. Go ask him. He's right there. He was one of the ones who was walking along the path with Jesus. And not just that, you've probably heard this before, but who were the first people to see the empty tomb? All the gospel writers tell us that it was women. And unfortunately, in that time, because of the bias of the time, women were not considered reliable eyewitnesses of information. In fact, women were not allowed to testify in court. Their witness was not considered reliable. And so if you are Luke and you want to create a legend, you want to make something up, you want to get people to believe that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead even though it didn't happen, why would you use women as the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb? 
there would be nothing that could undermine the credibility of Luke's account more than to say it was Mary who first saw Jesus. But why does Luke tell us that it was women who first saw the empty tomb? Because that's the way it happened. Because that was what actually happened. The facts forced them to write it. There's no other good explanation of why the woman would be there. Besides, this is not a legend. This is not a made-up story. This is for real. This actually happened. But again, the rational, the facts, the objective, that's not all that Luke is trying to get at here. There's more to this story. There is more to Christ than that. There's another aspect that Luke wants to get at here, another aspect that works along with the rational to help us trek along the road to certainty, and that is the relational, if I can frame it that way. If it is true, if Jesus Christ really did exist, if he really does go beyond the grave, if he's actually living, he doesn't just live on as a cause. He doesn't live on through his teachings or through his beliefs like Martin Luther King Jr. He's great, Martin Luther King Jr. Wonderful teachings. We remember him through his teaching. But Jesus Christ, if he is actually risen from the dead and he himself is actually living on, then what that means for you and I is that he can be in relationship with us actually. That he can talk to you. That he walks with us. It says so in verse 15. That while they were walking, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went along with them. You know what that tells us? What that means for us? If he is actually alive, what that means is that you and I can go on and move on from just believing some teachings about him and from him. We can move on from just facts. We can move on from just head knowledge. We can move on from just trying to obey him and following his teaching. We can move on from that to actually walking with him. We can have a relationship with him. You know, in the Bible, walking with God is one of the highest privileges, one of the highest callings that you and I can have as followers of Christ. In Genesis, when God decides to enter into relationship with Abraham, you know what he says? He says, Abraham, walk before me. He's inviting Abraham into relationship with him, and the metaphor that he decides to use is, walk before me. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, God's promise to his people, to his sons and daughters is this, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. You and I, if Jesus Christ is real, and we profess to following in him, following him, we are called to, we are allowed to enter into relationship with him where moment by moment we are aware of his presence next to us in whatever season that you are in. Whether you are in a season of joy or in a season of suffering, moment by moment we can be sure 
that he is walking with us, that we can be aware of him, and even better, that he is aware of us. You know, wanna, you know COVID sucked. I just, I just got COVID like three weeks ago. It was horrible, right? And just the physical, like physically it sucked, but what was worse was emotionally, it was really hard to be isolated from everyone. You can't be in the same space with someone for this amount of time. It's just, like, what are you going to do? You can only be around your kids so long. But one of the things that popped up during COVID that I actually am hoping that I get to continue to practice is walking with people. That became a thing. You know, It's not like, hey, you want to meet at a coffee shop? You want to meet here? It doesn't work like that anymore. It's, it was, hey, you want to come? You want to walk around my neighborhood with me? And that's what we would do. We would walk together. And there's something so intimate about walking and talking side by side with others. There's something so awesome, I guess. That's just the word that I'm going to use, awesome about it. You know, one of the greatest joys, it just, not joys, I guess, is, I, I, I don't know how to, how to phrase it, but I, I'm, I'm going to be super cheesy. There's a scene in, in uh, Lord of the Rings where at the end, Sam and Frodo are like so close to, you know, throwing the ring into the fire. And Frodo is so close, but he's struggling. And he's like, I can't do it. And you guys know the scene. What does Sam say? He says, I can't carry it for you, but what can I do? I can carry you. And so he puts Frodo on his shoulders and starts walking him to the pit of Mount Mordor. And I was just thinking about one of the blessings for me this past couple of years has been just these walks that I have with my friend. Specifically, I'm going to name him because he's not here, but specifically with my friend Young Sang. You know, I started off with working out. He's like, just come out. Let's work out together. And I would. And he said, let's go jog. And he's like, we can jog and talk and it'll be nice. I'm like, no, you can jog. Uh, I can't jog and talk because I need to save my breath for the jogging. And so eventually I think he figured out, like, we can't jog and talk. So uh, we walk and talk. And those moments, emails, texts, phone calls, they're great. Don't get me wrong. But you can't read each other's faces over an email. You can't hug. You don't cry in front of them. But when you are physically walking together, their presence is very much felt, their care for you, their love for you, so much more certain when you are walking side by side. And because Jesus is alive, because he is with us, because he walks with us, you can hear his voice. When you read the Bible, it's not just interesting anymore. You can sense him speaking to you in life-changing ways. I love how the disciples put it. They say, did not our hearts burn within us? You can feel it. Not just that, but I'm almost ashamed to, to admit this, but you know, for me, I, I, I have always been someone who struggles with prayer. I'm just not a good prayer. I'm a good reader. right? I can read the Bible all day long, but praying is not something that comes naturally to me. And recently, what I've been noticing, what I've been discovering is my prayer life, it's, 
it, it mostly all it is is I don't pray like I know that Christ is walking next to me. When I pray, what it mostly is is just me shooting flares up into the sky. Where I am in a moment of distress and anxiety. I'm suffering and I'll pray and I'm like, God, please, do you see this? Help me out. Do you see where I am? I'm right here. I'm struggling. I'm stressed out. I'm hurting. Please help me. Save me. Please do something to save me from my situation. But the promise is, if he is alive, then our prayers ought to be to pray when we are walking with him is to actually sense him speaking to you. And more than that, in your prayers, you are actually being heard because he is right there next to you, walking alongside of you. And so you have the rational and you have the relational. They work together. They build off one another. They push us down the road to certainty. And Luke writes with details to show this, that this is not a legend. This is not a story. This is not a myth. This actually happened. Jesus Christ died. And he rose from the grave. And if he is alive, then he walks with us and he is present with us. And so the question for us is, then how does this all work? What makes this even possible for us in the first place? It's the gospel. You see, we can never walk with Christ unless he comes to walk with us. It's a two-way thing. And you know what's interesting? If you do a word search in the Bible for the word walking, what you will find is that word walking is most associated with one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. In other words, the person who does the most walking in the Bible and the scriptures is Jesus. He is always walking. He's always walking alongside and amongst his people. And can you imagine this scene? The disciples, they're dejected. They're in disbelief. They're perplexed was the word that we used last week. And Jesus comes and he walks alongside them and he tries to explain to them that this is what was supposed to happen. This is what the scriptures were pointing to all along, that all of this wasn't not necessary. If you guys can take a look at verse 26 to 27 with me. (coughs) We'll start at verse 25. It reads this, And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This, this was the way that this was going to happen. This was the way that it was supposed to play out. And so Jesus starts with Moses, the giver of God's law for his people. The law that highlights our sin, our inability to follow God and his desires for us. He goes to the prophets, the prophets that come as voices of God as the voice of God, to draw his people back to him, the prophets that God's people continually disobeyed, the prophets that continually reveal our disobedience. You can just imagine him going through it. He says, look at the sacrificial system. Bulls and goats, not going to work. It's not good enough. All of this is pointing to a greater, complete, and ultimate sacrifice, me. And so we ask the question, how is this possible? How? It's the gospel. 
In order for him to walk amongst us, he had to become human. He had to come in the flesh. The Son of God comes. John 1.14, For the Word became flesh to dwell among us. He came. He walked along us. He came and we killed him. We put him on a cross to be punished in our place, to take the punishment of death that you and I deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reads that. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He comes, he dies. Our sins are taken away. The barriers are taken down. The Holy Spirit can now come into our life, and now he walks with you. He walks with us. You see how it comes together. Luke says, look, it happened. It was all part of the plan. Don't you see that this was necessary from the very beginning of time? Was it not necessary that it happened this way? Was it not necessary so that you and I can be redeemed, set free, no longer slaves, but son and daughters of the king, friends of the king, given the privilege and calling to walk alongside of him? Nothing matters more than this. How can you and I be certain that Christ is who he says he is? We look to the cross. The empty tomb had happened. And because he is risen, because he is there, you and I have the privilege of walking alongside of him and talking to him and being in relationship with him. Let me pray and close our time together. Lord, we thank you for just your word. We thank you for... Yeah, just allowing us as a family to trek through the Gospel of Luke. Just, just the joy of sitting under your word together with our brothers and sisters. And God, we pray, Lord, that, that just in this time, that whatever season that we are in, whether we are just so very aware of your presence in our life or we are so distracted by all the things that that we have going on that we can't even see you there. We pray, Lord, that you will help us for certainty, that you will help us to be certain that you are real, that you are alive, that you are not just a God playing up in the heavens watching, but that you are very much next to us and all the things that you call us to. Help us to believe that and to be for sure, to be certain. Love you so much. We pray all this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.